1: And thanks to our malt mates at Cry Malt, I'm Matt Kierkegaard, and that's just what we're here to do, talk about beer. In this case, making it, owning a business that makes it, and even not drinking it. As this week, I speak with Dan Dainton from Dainton Beer. You can read more about his background in the show notes, and we don't do what we often do and go right back into the early days of his brewing career because this chat really digs a little deeper into the evolution of Dainton Beer, drawing on senior journalist Claire Burnett's recent article about Dainton and their expansion. In this chat, we talk industry changes, crowdfunding, business evolution, and a whole lot more. And as you'll hear, Dan can talk even more than I can. I hope you enjoy the chat. Dan Dainton, welcome to Beer is a Conversation.
0: Thank you. and. you. Um... Speaking of beer, I've got some beer-related stuff in my mouth right now. <laughs> it's actually not beer. <laughs> oh,
1: what, what are you? Uh, cause it sounded like you were you were sipping something, but uh, obviously not.
0: I've got a protein shake and I've got some healthy banana bread, mate,
1: so that's what I'm having. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm uh, drinking uh, water, so uh, it's okay. Right. But what an appropriate way to, uh, to have a conversation about beer?
0: Absolutely, you
1: know, why not mix it up? I think. But mate, i uh, look. I was very surprised that we hadn't actually had you on the podcast before. So, uh, welcome to the conversation. And uh, thank you. Look. I, I guess your story um, of how you came to own Dainton Beer, you know, has been well told, and I'll, I'll link to even you know the, the 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 great story on your website, telling how uh, you know you. Got into home brewing. Um, you worked at a homebrew shop. You won a, a a champion beer at the um, you know, Australian homebrewers uh, competition, and we, which it certainly was a pilsner that I'll come back to. Um, mm. You know, started brewing at the um, Squires uh, in the Portland Hotel on uh, in in Melbourne um, before you gypsy brewed and your dad bankrolled you. You can find out all about that. I I, I guess for this chat, I wanted to dig a little bit more into what you've seen during that time. Um, You know, like, as I said, you you first won uh, in 2011, 10 years ago, for a Pilsner, um, which was an interesting beer, given that was probably, you know, well into the bitterness wars, um, you know, of of the early days of craft.
0: Yeah, look, that was... um... I'm not sure exactly what it says on the website, but it was an amateur um, award, so it's like um, home oh, like, award. Yep. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, yes, it was one that I was doing at home. So, but funnily enough, look, you know, my, my thoughts on on that, and I still believe this is that if you're able to brew a good, clean pilsner, good, clean style of any kind of a beer, that's what gives you the base level to then go and experiment. Um, I've always believed that, and our um, head brewer Cam. Um, I remember tasting his pilsner um, at his previous brewery years and years and years ago. He doesn't even remember me coming (laughs) (laughs) to visit him, but um, I did, and he just made exceptionally good clean beers, and I knew that if he could do that, then adding a couple of hops and a few other bits of flavours, we would do a little bit more than that, but we had the basis, we had the foundation, so... Um, it's important
1: absolutely, but I, I guess I was drilling into the fact that when you look at some of the um, creations that we've had out of Dayton over the last you know twelve, eighteen, twenty four months
0: we, we're not in
1: Kansas anymore Toto.
0: No no um, <laughs> look I, I think um, a lot of that that drive and that creative drive um, you know it previously probably came mainly mainly for me um, and my passion for, you know, trying uh, to create new things and, and not wanting to do the same thing twice. And, you know, I'm still guilty of that in my life in general. Um, and it sort of filtered through um, to the beer. So I was always like, well, what can we do that we haven't seen before what, you know, can we do that's interesting and new? How can we, you know, replicate something, um, you know, from a different category? Like it might be a chocolate bar or something like that, or you know, cereal. So, but that in
1: itself, and, and I, I, that, that's what I was getting to. That in itself is an interesting um, evolution within craft beer. What was it? What was it about brewing mm. that first inspired you to take up home brewing? Was it the the you know twenty five cent stubby, or was it the creative process of uh, seeing what you could make?
0: Yeah, look, to to be honest, Matt, um, I started it because I wanted to understand a little bit more about how beer was made. Like, I actually went for a job with James Squire um, as a salesperson to sell sell their beer. Okay. Yeah, so I don't know if many people know this, but um, I didn't get the job, but uh, I met with um, one of the, I think he was a sales manager for James Squire at the time of the line, and... I just had a really fun, exciting culture. I was like, oh, I've got to get into this. I've got to get into this industry. Um, and at the time, I was like, well, I can't get a job with those guys. And, um, you know, I, I can sell beer. Well, why can't I create my own brand? And so from there... My partner at the time was like, uh, well, maybe you should learn how to make it first. So I was like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> and um, it started from there, but very quickly afterwards, I just got hooked on it because of the continual creativity and the refinement. Um, so it was very much an art and a science for me, um, which was exciting. So there was you know, the empirical sort of data and research you do, and then the um, implementation of that, but then, yeah, the experimenting with so many different uh, hops and grains and yeasts and temperatures and mash profiles and all kinds of things. So it just kept me engaged on so many different levels. Um, and It, was, it wasn't it was easy, I think, uh, which for me is important. I need a challenge. Um, and I think I certainly got myself into a challenge <laughs> as I moved forwards with it.
1: What styles of beer, what flavours uh, attracted you? I, I presume you were a beer drinker before you became a, a, a brewer.
0: Yeah, I, I love beer. From um, oh, about the time I was 16 or 17, I was tasting many different beers. And yeah, I, I, up until very recently, the last year or so, I still had a collection of all these old beer bottles I'd sort of drunk and collected um, from when I lived at home. So um, I look, to be honest, a good pale ale uh, little Creatures Pale. It was always a go-to favorite of mine. Just and I, you know, to be honest, I haven't drunk an alcoholic beer for about eighteen months, believe it or not. Um, but that's sort of a side point. But that um, that beer, um, I still think was a cracker at least eighteen months ago. So I love that. But at the same time, big stouts. I was a sucker for a Russian Imperial Stout um, right through to. You know, West Coast um, American IPAs, there were some beautiful, beautiful beers uh, when I went to San Diego quite a few years ago now. Um, so those are probably my favourite styles. And yes, a good pilsner, um, but it's got to be good. It's got to be real good. Um, and I don't think people think of freshness when they think of pilsners, but it makes a massive difference. Some of the Czech lagers I tasted um, and the German ones when I was over in Europe just amazing. You can taste the hops in them. It's it's really quite something else. So yeah, I, I know there was a lot of different styles I liked.
1: Yeah, and, and and we'll actually come back to your prolonged abstinence, um, and and the the reasons for it and what you've discovered through that um, a little bit later in the in the chat. But you know, when you were making beer at um at squires in melbourne you would have been making a certain style of beer and you know the the consumer market seems to be very very different even from when you opened your brewery um what was that you know because you 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 had the brand you were gypsy brewing which gave you a little bit of Mm -hmm. uh, flexibility but then um you opened uh, or your construction began in uh, 2015 um you know the, the the industry's changed a lot since then. Have you found that, you know, you, you've had to change your business plan and your business model in keeping track with uh, you know consumer changes um, and the industry changes?
0: No, um, not the, probably not in the way that you think. What I'm seeing is that there's probably a greater acceptance of what's been done for a little bit of time now. Like um, I started in 2013 making. A very hoppy red beer with rye in um, and today that's that beer would still be relevant um and you know we still make it um yes look we've seen a couple of new innovations you know like the hazy beers um there's probably more acceptance of sour beers but these beers have been around for a while um except the neeps haven't but really i guess what i'm seeing is there's just more breweries doing more of it so there's a greater acceptance of stuff I don't know if there's that much that's new that's really relevant, like, you know, chocolate pretzel beers and, you know, honeycomb... Uh, chocolate bar beers and beers with Skittles in them. Whoever did that one, wasn't me. Um, you yeah, know, they're kind of, look. let's be honest, a lot of them are gimmick beers. That you're not really going to sit down and drink more than one or two of.
1: But I, I guess that's the um, what, what I was drilling down into was there were, I guess there were gimmick beers during the height of the um, bitterness wars uh, where people were trying to, or and we also had the brew dog trying to make the most alcoholic beers and those sorts of things. But, mm. you know, Breweries in the, you know, in, in the first um, decade uh, of the 2000s tended to launch with a core range. Um, probably even that yep. was into the, uh, you know, that was a more traditional craft beer core range of maybe an amber, a mm. pale ale, um, you know, stout. Uh, the, stout yep. um, the, the, the launch of stone and wood, we started to see the, you know, summer ale, now mm-hmm. known as the Pacific ale, um, start to enter, enter the range in IPAs. But these days, you know, again, does does um, Dainton still have a core range?
0: We do. Um, and it is what well, we've got sort of from the bottom up. We've got a hazy pale ale. There's a blood orange New England rye IPA, which is completely normal. Um, then we've got a hazy IPA, the jungle juice. Then there's a West Coast. IPA at 7%. So they're a main core range. We are um, looking at introducing, we'll introduce our Flamingo Sour as a core summer range. Um, and then uh, we've got the Imperial Core range, if you will, which is uh, a 10% Imperial New England IPA and our, our Russian Imperial Stout. Uh, the Dark Lord as well. So, yeah, I think if you compare those to, you know, say, and I'll just use this as an example because I remember when these guys started. Um, Mornington, when they started, um, yeah, they had, I think, um, you know, and if AG's out there listening um, or Maddie B, you can correct me, but it was something like a, a brown ale, a pale ale, a lager, and geez, what else was it? There might have been a wheat beer. And maybe they didn't have that lager until later, but they, yes, there were three or four very, very stock standard um, styles of beer. And that wasn't that long ago, I think. Oh, I was at the home brew shop. So maybe that was nine or 10 years ago. Um, and, you know, Red Hill, um, probably very similar. Um, though, you know, they're very traditional, um, those guys there. So, you know, that's changed. Um, I suppose just, you know, if I look at what I've done, it's changed a little bit. But there's always been that weird and wackiness in there. Um, somewhere, you know, our original core range, pale ale, mid-strength, a draft, which is an Australian-style lager. Um, what else do we have in there? Um, I think the red eye was in there at some point. Uh, you know, that – and oh, that's right, our IPA. That did not work for us uh, at the time, and that was – we had that in 2016. So five years ago, we basically had to phase that because – we couldn't compete on price, um, and there just wasn't the demand there for it. There was a demand for the, the crazier stuff.
1: So. That's what I was uh, getting at. There, there does seem to have been a shift in consumer expectations. It, you know, is it that consumer tastes have drastically changed, or is it there are more people competing in the same space and trying to carve out a niche for yourself um, in you know, some of the wild and wacky flavours?
0: Yeah, yeah. Look, I think a little bit of both. Um, there's definitely a lot more people in the space um, and it's not growing. So, you know, there, there is that. There are, you know, people try to differentiate themselves for sure. And it's really hard to do that with a clean lager when Corona's at $40, $42 a case. Um, you know, a lot of uh, brewers can't make it for that amount. So, yeah, you've got to start um, playing to your strengths. Um, which is the ability to brew lots of different unique things. Um, So, you know, I think there's that that plays a massive part. Yes, consumers' tastes are changing a little bit, but, you know, I think most people are still drinking for their main beers and the main quantity of what they're drinking is still the same old, same old stuff, It's still a pilsner. You know, that's what most people are drinking. Um, Sure, there are more people drinking IPAs and pale ales, there are more people drinking niepers, but... Um yeah, I, I, I don't know, I, I think a lot of growth is going to come from some of the more standard beers. I'm interested
1: to hear you say that craft beer is not growing because I've been saying, if, if I understood what you said correctly, because I've been saying that for a little while now, that mm. even if it's expanding through the Golden Ales and things, um, craft beer doesn't seem to have um, expanded. There seems to be more and more people, more, more and more breweries crowding into you know niches um and, and and competing for there and there does seem to be a lot of um the i won't call it innovation but a lot of the um new entrants are going for um lagers or beers that have some form of celebrity gimmick we've seen the um you know the the, the beer from mighty craft where they've Partnered with um, influencers. um you know we, we're seeing uh, a, a lot of lagers created that have some form of brand gimmick um, to them, and that seems to be. You know, is that your feeling that craft beer itself, what you know, what we saw isn't growing?
0: Um, look, I, I think that term craft, that's always a tricky one. Is <laughs> it like, yeah, yes. what, what is that? So, um, I'll answer this very cautiously. Um, look, I, I think the segment's actually growing. Craft. Um, is actually growing. However, where is it growing and who is growing it within it? Um, and, you know, I'm talking about, like, you know, is um, – and, you I know, still love these guys, so don't hate me, but, you know, is Pirate Life still considered a craft beer? now that they've been bought out by um, CEB. You know what I mean? Do we want um, well? Okay, let's get, And yeah, I don't have an answer for that. You know what I mean? Well, I, I, I do, I, in my humble opinion, uh,
1: obviously. But, you know, I, I think, you know, we, we've moved on, you know, when the debates about what was craft beer were taking place 15 years ago, it was malt, water, hops and yeast. And now you've got brewers throwing all sorts of adjuncts in to, you know, whether, either for a gimmick or to enhance flavour. That's very much in the eye of the beholder. Um, but you know independence or local seems to be the where, where the fight is the um I, I don't even know you know craft beer seems to be a marketing term that you know you've, you've got your mainstream traditional, you've got your premium and then you've got craft, which just is a branding term in my view.
0: yeah, and look, I think that's a <laughs> that may be the safest way to to use it and like maybe the most legitimate way to use it really like, because for me it, it actually comes down to a flavor um, when I think about craft beer. Mm. If you know if it tastes like you know, if it's got a lack of flavor and it's you know um, just not really up to the standard of quality that I'd expect, then you know that, that may influence it. But that being said, there are plenty of people out there who make independent, local, small produced craft beer that's just below average. Um, you know, and i don't know Okay, it's craft but doesn't meet that quality standard then you know maybe they're making a lager that tastes exactly like one of the big boys is that craft still so yeah anyway look, and and, and all, yeah. all of which is why i
1: think craft is relevant these days because as you yeah. said like you know, i i had a cracking um rice lager um you know at, at two different breweries craft breweries small independent craft breweries that right. um you know no one would have you wouldn't have seen any brewery launching in 2005, um, for example, when lagers were on the nose, but they they were proudly doing it, and it was being well consumed. And you know, yeah, yep. Um, we, we seem to have moved on to other um, debates about, you know, trying to put fences around other parts of the industry um so so not looking at craft but do you think the you know the indie beer space is is, is actually growing or you know is business tough for a, a brand like dayton um
0: it's, <laughs> it's always a challenge um and i think look we we have grown you know we've doubled our revenue in the last um 12 months so um, well, that's a i mean that, that's a big thing i mean there's a big thing. You know, talk talk and, to us a
1: little bit about where where that growth is coming from.
0: Uh yeah. Look, um, it's it's kind of across the board. So, look, um, if we look at the two sort of main segments of the company, which is really you know internal sales and the tap house, you know that's actually um, done an amazing job, even through um, COVID down in Melbourne. It's um, it has it has doubled as well. You know, today, but it's a smaller um, percentage of the overall company. Our external um, distribution has grown a lot. And, you know, that's true in massive thanks to um, Todd Barrett, our sales manager, driving through um, the blockades and basically landed in um, Melbourne. Jeez, uh, oh, when was it? It was the start of March, I think, end of bed. Um and, you know, he was charged with uh, basically training our distribution team. So we'd already had a couple of guys on board and um, we got a couple more and, you know, we uh, left a, a long-term partnership with our distributors, Phoenix. Um, we just got to a size where it made sense for us to do it. And, um, yeah, since then um, we've had a lot of growth, uh, double our revenue. That being said, we doubled it the year before as well, so it's been a very strong trajectory. But Todd and um, our general manager will um, have just been yeah working their bums off. Um, not to mention everyone has um, throughout the um, throughout COVID. Um, so there's been a lot of growth um, in our national distribution. We've gone back into Coles recently. Uh Woolworths have done some great things for us as well. And just being able to connect um, directly to our independence has made a massive um a massive impact. That's working closely with um, Richie's IGAs, which are actually just down the road from us. Um, so yeah, that that's a nice little uh, connection there. They're actually in the same suburb on the same road. And yeah, they've they've done really well. Um, so that's been nice to sort of build that to. How important is it to be in the
1: um, in, in, in the big national retailers um, in, to, to get growth?
0: Uh, look, it depends where you are on your journey, I think, yeah, you know, and what your, your mission plan is. So, you know, you could just be completely in them and go nowhere else, really. Like there are brands that launch into them. Um, that wasn't us. We started with the independents. Um, and, you know, we knew that we would get to a point where we um, – had to go to the majors and wanted to. Um, And, you know, I would love there to be more coming from them. Um, However, I'm also very mindful of something um, Benny Krauss said um, years ago, I think, at one of the brew cons or one of the conferences. He said, look, you've just got to be mindful that if you've got too much of a percentage of your um, sales and revenue going towards them, you know, what happens if something goes wrong? Um, What happens if they pull it away for some reason? Um, So I'm very mindful of that too, just how spread we are um, across the different sectors and different markets. Um, So exports and other things that we do as well. So, um, yeah, look, I I think, you know, to answer that question, yes, it's a a critical part of of your growth. You know, you you need it. You know, they reach more people. Um, You know, one of the really important sort of... um, what would you call it? Uh, Tallying points, I suppose, is people come and they go, Are you in Dan Murphy's? You know, it's like, Well, yeah, we are. Um, before that, um, it was really challenging for us to go, Okay, we're in none of the majors, none of the retail chains. People ask where they could buy us. It's like, Well, where do you live? I live such and such. Okay, um, I've just got to check if we're in, um, you know, the local bottle shop there and what stock they've got. So, yeah, those years were tough um, when people wanted the bio product, but you didn't have a consistent, um, you know, outlet for it. So yeah, that's one important aspect of I think is having that consistent supply um, to the end consumer.
1: But is it a double-edged sword? You know, as you said, uh, what, uh, what Ben said, um, something we talked about on the podcast recently was, you know, I walked into one of my local BWSs. That- this time last year, had a good selection of independent craft and, you know, that had been replaced by probably one category, you know, relatively local category leader in most classes, one national um, and then a whole lot of home brands, um, you know, in in, in each of those. So that means a lot of uh, brewers have been either deranged or selectively deranged um from from some of them either through not not pull through or you know at, at their the, the whim of a major retailer wanting to put their own beer in there
0: absolutely and you know that that'll be happening and, and happens in completely different industries as well you know people own the whole chain um you know look at the mining industry for, for one you know they're trying to own all aspects of it you know they some car manufacturing companies alone miners and all kinds of stuff goes on so you know that's always going to happen and it's kind of unfortunate that it's happening a little bit however the supermarket chains that that own these uh you know large retail outlets they're they're not silly either and they know that people want uh, choice um too and yeah. You know, yes, it's good to have a couple of the home brands in there to offer some choice, but there's always going to be room for the best performing. Um, you know, and I say best performing, you know, these guys are looking for sales, right? You know, and you may have the best tasting or best judged beer in the country, and people might just not dig it. They might not dig your recipe. They might not dig what you stand for, your packaging, whatever it is, you know, or that beer that you made is just not really a beer that people want to drink, like, you know, i use ourselves as an example. Cherrywood smoked Baltic ripe water. Like, how many times have people don't want to drink that twice? Um, so I guess what I'm saying is that if you've got a good performing beer um, and you've really got to kind of think of it as a marketing game, unfortunately, it's what it is a large part of, um, you know, these guys are looking for performance off the shelf, you know. Is your product selling? Do people want to buy it? Are they engaged in it? Okay, are you making our jobs easy, you know? um they're, they're humans at the end of the day um just like we are and I think about that when I talk about non-craft versus craft like when I worked for James Squire it was oh you don't make craft beer. it's you know owned by the Japanese I'm like man I'm eighth generation Australian and I'm making it you know I'm pretty much a homebrew kit. so Anyway, I segued a lot there, but no, but that's okay. Well, I mean, it,
1: it's interesting because even saying that, when you say it's marketing, it's a, that's a fair difference from you know the if you build it, they will come mentality of the early
0: days of craft. Yeah, look, I think that if that's part of your strategy, you still have to be um, you still have to have integrity around that, and you know that is part of what we do. You know, like we haven't and won't shy away from trying to make the absolute best quality and best tasting gear that we can. Um, you know, it's something that um, I know our brewers and, you know, the guys that are working there every day, um, they're just vigilant about, you know, it's, it's really at our heart of what we do is making, you know, something that is of excellent standard and, and excellent quality. So for us, it's important. Um, but yeah, it might not be for, um, for every brewery or for every brand. Um, you know, unfortunately there yeah, there's just gonna be people who don't care about that. Um and they're out to make money. And there's nothing wrong with making money. Um, you know, for me it's just about um having integrity around what you're doing. But again, not everyone's gonna have that <laughs> okay. either. <like this>, so
1: <laughs> And not every consumer's gonna spend the money for it.
0: No, that's not everyone gives a shit. Like, let's be honest. Uh, sorry, I had the sneak one. Sweet. No, it's in okay. There. It's an
1: adults it's a beer podcast. It's for adults. Oh, good, good. <laughs> yes,
0: well, I, I had a couple of um, SHITS in Claire's article so I didn't want to let you down. Um, but yeah, look, I think that's the thing like you know we're so invested in um this industry, you know, the juice craft, the craft beer industry. Um because it's like There's a camaraderie around it as well. Um, and it particularly was in the early days like when I was brewing um out of the same shed of kaiju and exit and who else? two birds were there at one point um you know what i mean like um and the edge were there as well like you know we all knew each other and um, we're all good mates and we're all in it together oh that's right brew cult hendo was there too so you know to me there's there's something in that about um that camaraderie in the industry which i hope continues um you know, that that's important. But there's a lot of people coming in now that, I don't know, it's a lot bigger. And I guess I've kind of lost track of a lot of breweries. Like, I used to know every single one. And now, but I don't care. It's just that, you know, um, I don't know, we're, we're a little way ahead. You know, we've got to keep looking forwards, I, I suppose.
1: Oh mate, I, I I used to know most of the breweries, and now you know, like I can, we can have written about one, and I don't remember it because there are just so many uh, and so much happening.
0: There is, yeah, and look, I think that's great, and I look, I love the idea of, of local breweries and having you know the ability to go down to you know your local town or go away for a weekend and there's a local brewery there. Look, I think that's exciting, but I'm not excited when they're making shit beer. Like to be honest, like it really doesn't excite me at all like if they're just a hospitality tourism venture that said let's put a brewery in that's going to be awesome well good on them but as a you know a beer consumer i use that term lightly now because i don't really drink much but you know i want something good like (laughs) i go to i go to bend in oregon like in the states uh what the last time i went there 25 30 breweries you know including like Deschutes, boneyard and uh, who else were there um no, there was a bunch. But the beers probably amazing. You know, like just, ah. it's And, you know, that town's a lot like Bright, um, you know, that kind of an area. It's, uh, it's a beautiful little town. Well, it's a lot bigger than Bright. But, um, yeah, that's that's what excites me. And it's just a real, real... Just love and passion of their product and what they're doing, not just oh, let's make some bucks by opening up a, a brewery um, because there's a nice juicy tax um, excise rebate now. Like, I, I don't know. I don't think everyone's got their heart in the right place, so that's okay. But yeah, as a consumer, it's um, can be disappointing sometimes. Yeah, and mate,
1: one of the other things I wanted to chat to uh, you about was you were one of the early movers in terms of um, equity crowdfunding. We've seen a bit of a, a rush of them. Now, I was interested that you'd told Claire that it was probably something you wouldn't do again.
0: Yeah, and um, yeah, I'll make it very clear that, you know, Birchill and the guys there, in particular, Matt um, Batali, worked with us very closely. They were like just absolute professionals and just legends of people. So um, nothing to do with, with those guys, um, you know, Matt's even a shareholder, so there you go. Um, but look, that, that experience is actually really good and very rewarding, and I would recommend it um, to other people starting out. It's probably more just where we're at now, um, and going. Look, not not really wanting to give away any more equity in the company at this stage. That's probably about it. How much did you give away? Because you, you,
1: from memory, you raised two hundred and fifty thousand.
0: Yes, it was just under two hundred fifty thousand. Yeah. So I think it was two point
1: one three percent. Oh, so it was just a, like it was a it was a nothing compared to some of the ones that. Not much.
0: No,
1: it wasn't
0: much. Well, when you look at
1: some of the uh, amounts that other brewers have raised, you wish you'd actually gone for more to sort of really, um, you know, roll up the capital.
0: I, I would love to have some more capital now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's look, and that's something that. Um, You know, we are are looking at very closely, like we're going through another process now Um, and I don't think they included in the article in the end, I have to go back and read it, but appointing an independent director and a sales and and marketing um, consultant as well. So we're basically um, sort of not rejigging but really starting to formalise our corporate structure and our strategy for the next five years. Um, and being very serious about, okay, what is it that we want and where we're going. That process um, is taking up a lot of our time. Um, and it's also hopefully it can come out with some clarity so we can see um, where our ROIs are going to come on uh, if we take on any more debt. And you know, when I say debt, uh, we're still completely fully funded um, independently except for the crowd Um funding scheme so yeah but for me that's you know this is something that's between uh, dad and i um you know the the two main shareholders and we have um given some small equity to some of our uh, key key staff as well um but yeah for kevin and i look we, we'd, we'd been at loggerheads for quite some time about you know all right, well, how are we going to expand this thing how are we going to expand you know what is it that we want you know if we want to keep growing, look at the rate we're growing. It's pretty evident that we're going to actually need to expand, um, you know, a lot a, and invest a lot more in capex more than we thought that we would. However, we want to have a clear pathway um, for our ROI. So it's a it's a big process, and um, yeah, we're both just reluctant to um, go borrowing any more capital at the moment or um, doing any more CSF stuff until we've got a clearer idea of where we're going. And um, that'll probably be in the next three to six months as we work through this process.
1: What's the downside of um, crowdsourced funding? Because I know that, you know, once you take it on, you have to start reporting um, publicly. You need to file reports with um, ASIC. I mean, is that both a financial burden and also, you know, people get to, you know, have access to how the business is going?
0: Um, no, look, it's, it, it's not a massive time um, consuming, consuming uh, effort. And look, I say that um, and, you know, Will, Ed Sheeran Major, does most of it. So it probably is more so for him. Um, but look, it, it does um, make you more accountable, which I don't think is a downside. Um, again, for me, it's like, look, if we were to raise another 250 or 500, you know, it's, it's like, okay, we'll, 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 when does that stop? If we give it another, another 2% or another 6%. I guess what I'm looking at is the equity as well. Um, would that equity perhaps be better off being spent or awarded to, uh, say, another investor, someone who's had industry experience perhaps or relevant experience who could actually come on and help us grow? So perhaps that is one downside is that, yes, you've raised the capital, but there isn't that sort of level of, say, investor experience that can help you grow if that makes sense. So I don't know if someone came along who was, I don't know, X um, stone from America or something like that. And he said, look, this is how we did it guys. I want to buy, you know, I want in 20% or something of the company um, as an independent, but you know, I really want to help you guys drive it. You know, our values align, et cetera, et cetera. Something along those lines, I think is where our mind is at. It's like, well, you know, we are open to that idea, Um of you know giving some more away, but it's got to be to someone who we think can help us uh, grow the company and point us in the right direction. So um, it could be someone like that in the CSF, though it's more of a retail kind of equity buying, so it's, it's it's fairly different, I suppose. If that answers your question,
1: Matt. Yeah, the, the other thing, and you, you've alluded to a few times, is that you're you know for a person who owns a brewery and you know was a brewer, you're not actually drinking yourself, um, which is mm. rather uh, you know apropos in uh, uh, dry July did are you happy to talk a little bit about that decision
0: absolutely yeah absolutely I've always always been one to do things a little bit differently Matt so um, I think embracing that as well um, you know why not just stop drinking um, but no look that probably came around it'd been been quite a few years where it was just, um, it, it's just so easy for me to, to drink. You know, like it was my job. I, a lot of what I did was um, beer promotions. Um, so I'd be out, you know, socializing, drinking, schmoozing, all that kind of stuff, which, you know, people are like, oh, it's a dream. I'm like, look, well, it is a dream. But with it seven days a week, uh, 365 days a year, you know, I'm not complaining but, you know, that amount of um, booze that I was choosing to drink, and I say that I was choosing it because I it was, um, it was just starting to have a toll. And then, yeah, I could just see how it was just um, impacting a lot of other areas of my life in a negative way. And I was like, okay, I just need to get it under control. And I struggled with getting it under control for years. Have- I was
1: going to ask you that. So it wasn't a matter of just being more mindful of your drinking. It was, you know easier to not drink than to reduce the amount
0: yeah so um i had been trying to reduce it and i would go through periods where i was really good and you know um you can ask oh geez there's a couple of times i went to wa where i'd have i'd do a a week-long beer tour and i'd basically i'd been in the middle of six weeks of no drinking and i was at beer events not drinking um my poor rep at the time and I did it in Victoria once too when I was out at dinners and um, people were like, oh, well, you know, I'll get you a beer. And I'm like, oh, you know, I'm not drinking, um, you know, for the next six weeks. And I'm like, oh, okay. So there was times where I was doing that, but I found I just kept going back um, and I just drink just as much. And I just feel terrible about myself. i would be like, ah, oh, I've just done that again. And, you know, I'm talking about drinking, but this was my whole life. Um, you know, I'd be, stuffing up in other areas too, Matt. So it wasn't just the booze. It was something a little bit deeper rooted than that. But anyway, um, yes, it got to the point it was start of um, last year. So it was about two weeks before the COVID shit hit the fan in Melbourne and hit the the fan uh, fairly big time. I had decided um, I had a coach who I'd been working with for about, Oh, three months before, about drinking less and just getting my stuff under control, and that had been pretty good. But I'd been in Bali for a week, I think, and just I came back. I'm like, no, no, no. I need to. I need to do something a bit more than just trying to wind it back. Um, and yeah, I, he said, well, you know, what do you think you need to commit to? And I said, um, I don't know. I think if I can do sixty days of no drinking, I think that'll be pretty big and like, you know, it doesn't sound like much, but that was longer than I've ever done. I think in, since I was 15, maybe, you know, and I'm 39 now. So um, it was huge. And, you know, he was like, well, what are you going to get from doing that? You know, what are you going to find? And I knew that I was going to find out who I was again. And I think that I just lost that. And, um, you know, I, I, I just want to make sure that I'm not saying that it was booze that was the problem. It was me that was the problem and booze is my weapon of choice to um, not deal with a lot of stuff um, emotionally that I hadn't dealt with in a long time. So after 60 days of no drinking, I went for another – I went for seven months with nothing. And, yeah, it was just amazing the amount of – um, shit that came up that I had to deal with. Um, and I'm so grateful that I did um, because, yeah, I, I kind of got myself back and I got my life back. Um, and I'm at a point now where I can have a beer or a wine um, and really enjoy it. You know, I can have one, I can have three, I could have five, whatever. Um, I generally only have one or two. Um, and then, you know, I might not touch it for another month or six weeks or whatever. So, yeah, I was just able to get my, my choice and my power back around that. So, yeah, it was a pretty massive um, journey doing all that throughout COVID, in you know, a house by myself with no one around. It, it was pretty big, man. And at the same time, about almost exactly at the same time, um, I was diagnosed with adult ADHD. So that was really interesting to, to look at that and how that impacts impulsivity as well, which was a large part of you know, what I was doing. So, mm. yeah, it was a pretty pretty big AD months.
1: <laughs> with Zero Alk being such a hot-button issue at the moment, or a topical issue, Do have, have you experimented with Zero Alk beers? Have you uh, been drinking them yourself?
0: I drink one every day. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I love it. And to be honest, I think... I started drinking Heineken Zero pretty much straight away. And it was just something to have, you know, it tasted, you know, after you haven't had a beer for a while, it tastes like beer, you know, and um, it's just the alcohol that you don't get. It's still got the beer flavour. So um, I still have one every day um, pretty much. Um, And that's my treat. It's like, well, at the end of the day, I'm like, great, want an alcoholic beer, I'll have one. Um and I love it because it still tastes, you know, the big drop one, it's a favorite of mine right now. They're pale, it tastes tastes good. And like, yeah, okay, maybe it doesn't taste as, you know, the same as a a big hobby, you know, seven percent IPA, but I'm really happy with it. Um and you know, it's something I'd I'd love to see more of is people being able to embrace that, you know, when they're out or when they're at barbecues. You know they're driving. It's just like, well, look, there's still an option to you know to have a beer and you know not feel like you're not a part of something. And yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think it's great. I guess one thing that has changed a lot for me, Matt, is that there really isn't that drive for me to go out to have a beer and catch up with mates at the pub. And I think that's probably been the biggest realization for me is the, the booze not being at the forefront of my social life. It's like, wow, now what do I do? So. Yeah, that, that's been a big changer um, for me um, to go, okay, well, geez, what, what do I do? Oh, again, just
1: a, yeah, very, very interesting. And It's been a long-term, you know, it's been longer than a month. <laughs> so it's not just been a dry July. So uh, well, I'm hearing more and more people working in the industry grappling with the same issues at the moment, which uh, I, I think mirrors a lot of things that are going on in society uh, much more broadly.
0: I think you're absolutely right. Um, and, you know, hospitality and the, 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 the beer brewing industry, and look, I'm going to say hospitality now because it's been so severely hit, particularly in uh, Victoria. Um, that's a hard job. You know, my hat's off to people who work in that um, industry. It's tough. Like, right? yes, they choose it. Uh, it's a hard gig. And look, you are surrounded by booze and other, other drugs as well. Um, and, you know, it's... It, it, it's tough. It's, it's high stress. You know, you're dealing with people who are intoxicated as well. So, you know, those guys, um, you know, they, they do do it tough. Um, and, yes, there are a lot of people in the industry that drink probably more than they should. And, you know, that same in the brewing industry. Um, and, yeah, I'm saying that as a, uh, as a brewery owner, I, uh, I get the, the contradiction of that. However, for me, you know, the one thing that keeps me in it is people have a choice, you know, and if they want to choose to drink, then, you know, we offer them a range of, you know, what I think are some of the best quality products um, in Australia. And yes, a non-alcoholic beer is on the cards for us. And it's just an absolute must for me. It's like, look, if people want to choose to drink, you know, here here are the best choices, in my opinion. If they choose to not drink there's other choices and that's completely fine too, you know. Um, so for me, that's really important. It's that freedom of choice thing. Um, and, you know, if I ever saw anyone shaming someone into drinking, oh, I'd, I'd just, I'd be sick. I'd, I, I hate that kind of behaviour. It's just, it's really not for me. And, you know, it probably was in the past, um, but I don't know. Choice for me and freedom of choice, that's my biggest value as a person. Um, and something that is one of our biggest
1: ones as a company as well. So, yeah. There you go. Well, mate, it's been great chatting with you. Thank you very much for joining uh, us for this conversation about beer and... Pleasure. ...not beer. Yeah. I'm
0: going to go have a non-alcoholic beer right now, though.
1: Good on you. Uh, Well, Dan Dayton, thank you very much, and uh, all the the best as you uh, you continue your plans for expansion.
0: Thanks, Matt. Really great to speak to you, mate, and take care up there in Queensland. Um, Hopefully get up there soon and catch up for a a non alcoholic beer.
1: And it won't be at BrewCon, unfortunately.
0: No, that's a bit sad, mate. Yeah. um, It is. um, But look, for some crazy reason, I booked a holiday in the Gold Coast at that time anyway. So um, if you're around, catch you you
1: up. My calendar is open, so (laughs) hopefully we can. (laughs)
0: That's right. There'll be a lot of brewers hanging out.
1: Good on you. Thanks, Dan.
0: Thanks, mate.
1: And that was Dan Dainton. Radio Brews News is proudly presented by Malt. With over 25 years in the field, Cryomalt is dedicated to providing the finest brewing ingredients to help brewers create the foundations of a truly excellent beer. They are your premium brewing partner and they are also our partner in beer conversations just like this one.